All right, if you have a Bible, please open to Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15, as we continue our series, What is the Mission of the Church? Last week, we continued to look at uh, this trilogy of individual conversions. We're seeing that uh, this, this transformation that is taking place in these cities is not just a mass corporate delusion. Uh, there's a very personal and individual nature to the gospel. And these people's lives individually are changing, and that in turn is changing the world around them. These seemingly random encounters uh, with these individuals um, aren't random at all. God had called Paul to Macedonia through a vision of a man urging him to come and to help them, and that vision led the disciples through Philippi and onward towards Athens, taking the gospel westward into Europe. So there are... um, Huge implications to what is taking place here as the gospel is moving westward, even into Europe. And we ended with Paul and Silas being freed from prison and at the same time leading the Philippian jailer to salvation. Paul and Silas are led, are they're, they're, um, they're let go by the authorities. Paul amazingly won't let it go um, as they want to let them go silently. But Paul stands for justice. He wants justice to be served. And we talk about how, you know, discipleship and evangelism are extremely important, but there's also other things that Christians are supposed to care about. They're supposed to care about politics. They're supposed to care about education. They're supposed to care about justice. And Paul cares about justice. And um, it really upset Paul that they know that they've done wrong and they won't own up to it. And he wants a public confession on his way out, which is really kind of interesting. But eventually, they leave and they head to this city called Thessalonica. And we'll find out here um, their strategy for going into these cities and what they plan to do in sharing the gospel um, as they go. So let me pray for us and we'll get started. Lord, there's a lot for us to learn here about the nature of discipleship, about how the gospel goes forth boldly. Father, for many of us in this room, we have grown very apathetic in our faith, very comfortable. We've bought into the American dream. We believe that the car and the house and the salary will somehow make life comfortable and easy. Lord, for many of us, we need to be woken up. We need to be woken up to the primary calling of the Great Commission. No matter where we are, no matter what workplace we're in, no matter what neighborhood we live in, you have put people around us, Lord, who desperately need to know the hope of the gospel. Lord, I want, to, I want to see a culture here at Flat Rock where people know how to articulate their faith. And not, they not only know how cognitively, they have a heart to share it. Lord, I don't, I, don't want, I don't want to just heap shame on people. I want people to repent and feel encouragement that there is always hope. There's always a chance to reorient. There's always a chance to equip ourselves uh, for this great and, and privileged work that you've called us to. We ask that your spirit guide us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I've talked about quite often up here, uh, I usually like to read a companion book as I prepare my sermon, so I'll find something on the bookshelf or someone will recommend something and I'll I'll pull it out and start reading as I'm preparing my sermon. And this week, there's a... a, a, Is Eli here? I don't think he's here this week. There's a young, young man named Eli Yarborough who's been 
coming to Flat Rock, and I've had the privilege of discipling him, and we were sitting there having Jersey Mike's, um, and he recommended a book, or he told me about a book he's, called, he's, he's read recently called Living Life Backwards. Has anyone ever read this book? A Scottish pastor named David Gibson. Um, I thought that the, the title was quite provocative, and he explained to me the premise of the book. He said it was based on the book of Ecclesiastes, and the idea was to live life backward. And it challenges the reader um, to, instead of living life forward, always worried about the future from beginning to end, to instead live life with the end in mind first, in order to put the rest of life into proper perspective. Essentially, the idea is that the mortality rate is still 100%. It's not changing. We are all going to die. And that the, 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 the fact of our death should not depress us or it should not make us disillusioned with life, but instead should put life in proper perspective about the gift that every second and every moment we have is. And then to live life in light of that truth. So to some, to, live, to think about death on a daily basis sounds really pessimistic and depressing and almost nihilistic. But according to David Gibson's, it's, it's quite the opposite. And after reading the book uh, this week, I, I, I tend to agree with him. I don't know if you're like me, I often think of death. Um, almost every night I would say when I put my head on the pillow and the lights are out and it's dark in our room, I think, this might be my last day. I may not wake up from this. Or tomorrow might be my last day. And I wonder about the finality and the finiteness of life. I don't know if you all think about those things. And sometimes it does put me in, into a state of fear. I'm wondering, well, if, that's, if this is it, what, what have I done with my life? A state of regret, possibly. But it also can put me into a state of gratitude for the life that I have had. Or even motivate me to live my life well by taking advantage of the short time I do have in this one life. So in reading this passage this week, David's book resonated with me in considering what would motivate someone like Paul, who's been beaten and stoned, imprisoned, abused, unjustly treated and rejected, similar to what Radwan and Asma were talking about, about the suffering, even as they follow God's call, they're experiencing things that are almost unimaginable to us, that are, that are sickening hearing about a niece being beaten and a child dying. What would cause someone like Radwan and Esma or someone like Paul here to carry on? Why would you not just throw your hands up in the air and say, this life, it, it doesn't work out. I'm done. What would motivate someone like Paul to share the good news of the gospel, to continue on in this journey to establish the church? Wouldn't dreams of the good life that Paul had before send him back home to find a wife to settle down and to live in peace? Many of us in this room are probably motivated by that same dream. Wouldn't those agonizing nights on the damp floor of a prison, freezing and starving to death, be enough to call it quits? What possesses a man like Paul to carry on? And the more I thought about it and the more I was reading this book, I was thinking Paul understood what it meant to live life backwards in light of death. He even writes himself, to live as Christ, to die as gain. If I'm to live life in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell, he writes. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for he knows that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. The purpose for his life was to be of use to the kingdom, primarily, first and foremost, to live as Christ, to die as gain. David Gibson writes in his book, the universe you inhabit and the life you have today come from God's hand as something you do not deserve. 
Your life is on loan for a short while. And one day God will call time and take it back. Just like the library book on recall that's overdue on your shelf. So embrace life for what it is rather than what you'd like it to be. Live it before God with reverence and obedience. This is the pathway to joy, he writes. And even though as you walk it, there will be mystery and there will be pain. You know, Paul is a guy who lived life before God with reverence and obedience as he follows this call despite persecution that gave him joy in the midst of his suffering despite the trials. That joy kept him going. It's what sent him from prison back into the the same city even after he was stoned. Paul's to live as Christ, to die as gain philosophy informed his methodology. What is your philosophy that's informing the way you live life? That's informing the commitments you make and the decisions you make? Is it in light of death? It tells us here that what Paul and his companions are doing is turning the world upside down in the opinion of those in the city. Now think about that. They've been there for three weeks. And the opinion of these total strangers solely based on the message that they are talking about, is that you are turning the world upside down. What you are saying is causing me to rethink the entirety of my life and the commitments I made and the things I live for. And as we know, they're not really turning the world upside down. They're turning the world right side up. But everything that they're proclaiming about this resurrection, about this death, about this obedience, about this Savior and this Messiah, seems totally bass-ackwards. It makes no sense. Because it's not what they're experiencing. So how does this small, ragtag group of disciples manage to come into a city and in a month make the people think that their world was being turned on its head, thrown into chaos just because of what they were saying? What do people say about Flat Rock? Are we turning this neighborhood upside down? Are we turning things on their heads for people? Are we caring about them and pursuing them and loving our neighbors enough that people are thinking, I, it's, I have to rethink my life because of my interaction with these people who love Jesus? So I want to look at two points to help inform why and how they're doing this. Their bold strategy and this dichotomous response. Okay, let's look at the bold strategy that they have. Look with me at verses 1 through 4. So after being treated unjustly in Philippi, after seeing incredible fruit from the conversions of Lydia and the slave girl and the Philippian jailer, Paul and his crew head to the city of Thessalonica. This is a very important city, the chief city of Macedonia. It was a port city. There's a lot of people coming and going, a lot of trade happening here, a lot of commerce. It's a lively city. And part of their strategy was to always go into the city center first. They wanted to go into the big city to encounter people from all over the world, because remember, it's God's heartbeat for men and women. It talks about very specifically to point out that women were being saved here too. So God sees them in in equal light. He also sees people from all over the nations. And so God wants them to go into the place where they can interact with the, the most diverse group of people in order for those people to hear the truth and be sent out. And this has always been God's heartbeat. I don't know if you thought about this. I've, I've mentioned it before. But even in the Old Testament, God has Israel. If you, you probably wonder, why not just go from Egypt to the Promised Land? Why this 40 years of wandering? Now, we know in part it's because of their disobedience, but it's also in part because of God's heart. He always has a missionary heart. He wants them to go and interact with these other nations and live in a place of total dependence 
As I've said before up here, one pastor said, the safest place for you to be is in the midst of the battle and not on the sideline. Think about that for a second. The safest place for you to be as a Christian is in the midst of the battle because that is a place of utter dependence upon God. And God brought Israel out of Egypt to make them utterly dependent upon Him. Even as they beg to go back into slavery, which many of us do in our own lives, we, we like slavery better than freedom. We like our vices and our addictions better than living in the freedom and the grace and the joy of Christ. Yet he's called you to interact with your neighbors and your coworkers, whether it's on a bus writing music or in a lab or designing software with someone, it doesn't matter. God has called us out into these places to bump shoulders with people and with all these different kinds of stories for the sake of sharing the gospel. So they go into the city as part of their missionary strategy. We know that they first go to a synagogue. This is a place where the the religious people are, and, and in this particular city, there's a lot of Greeks. Paul has been asked to take the gospel. He's been not asked, he's been commanded to take the gospel first and foremost to the Gentiles. So they go where there are God-fearing people, people that can at least speak the language a little bit. They can reference scripture, they can reference the history of Christianity, and people will have some sort of gauge of what they're talking about. They can equip disciples there and then send those people out so they can multiply and replicate from the get-go. And God is giving them favor wherever they go. We're seeing mass conversion happen. We're seeing some people who are embracing this good news and some people who are obviously rejecting it here. But it tells us they would spend a considerable amount of time, especially in this city. This is probably the longest stay they've had in a while. And an interesting note is that Paul and Silas, it says, tells us here that they, were, they, had, to, they had to get a job, right? They have to pay rent. They got to find a place to live. They obviously need to feed themselves. They can't just go and steal. Uh, these, are very, these people have given up all the worldly comforts to follow God. And so they take up tent making which is really interesting. So they go on, I guess, during the weeks. They're making tents for people. They're selling those tents. They're getting paid by the hour, I guess. And they're using that money just to support themselves. Paul refers to this in his letter to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2. And tent making in their day was akin to the work of a slave. So think about Paul. He's the religious elite. He was wealthy. He was well-to-do, he was comfortable, and now he's doing the work of a slave in order to accomplish the work of Jesus. What would compel a man to do that? Because he's been completely and utterly humbled by God. He doesn't see a slave as being unequal to himself. He sees him as being made in the image of God. And he is not too proud to acquaint himself with their work, to go into some of the darkest and hardest places to go. Now, for some of you all in this room that are cleaning floors and taking out trash like I did through three and a half years of seminary, washed windows, lifeguarded in an indoor pool with a bunch of 16-year-olds when I was nearly 30, that's humbling work. That's work I was willing to do to put food on the table to support myself, to be able to follow the call of God. And many of you all, God has humbled you to make you utterly dependent upon His provision. And you don't know where the next paycheck's coming from. You don't know how you're going to pay the bills or keep the lights on. That's a scary place to be. But in God's economy, He has you where He wants you. Because there are great lessons you can learn from that. Now, the opposite is true for some of us. Some of us are doing so well. Things are going so gangbuster for us. We're raking in the money and we've just fallen asleep at the wheel. So how do we get ourselves back into that place of dependence? 
back into the midst of the battle. Because you can always re-engage. The point here is not to shame you into more apathy. The point is to wake you up, to encourage you that this can always be a decision that's made to go back into the work that God has called you to, that He's called the church to. So Paul and Silas would probably spend the week doing this, making money, and then they pay the rent to this guy named Jason that's mentioned here. We don't know if he's an innkeeper or a hotel owner or just a guy who let them crash on his couch. But we see that Jason, the guy who's let them stay with him, that even he comes to believe in this same Jesus. So no matter where they are, out on the streets, in the marketplace, at the synagogue, with the innkeeper, their faith is always on display. They're never setting it aside. And it's amazing to see the strength that they have with what they're enduring when many of us would have walked away and gone home at this point. So their bold strategy, including it was targeting major cities, going first to the synagogue, where in this case there's God-fearing Gentiles. And once they set up shop, it says that they reasoned with the people. It's really important we talk about that. What does it mean that they reasoned with the people? And you know what they reasoned about? Now think, about think about these words in the same sentence. They reasoned with the people about the resurrection. So in their, in their minds, there was a reasonable argument for someone dying and being raised from the dead to new life. Now, to many people in our culture, that is very, even people, some people in the church, that is a very unreasonable and irrational truth. Like, Jesus... Messiah, Savior, great prophet, good teacher, died to death, praise God for that. But raised to life, that sounds like a fairy tale. And for us, as we read this, we think to ourselves, these primitive people, of course they could pull that one over on them. They would believe anything. They were so uneducated. They're so, they're so ancient and antiquated that they would believe anything. Well, that's not the case at all. The resurrection has never been easy to accept and believe in, as we see from the reaction of these people. Some believe it. It's the best news they've ever heard. Others want to murder them for it. Because it's so provocative. It's so radical. It's so life-changing. If this Messiah really did defeat death, if he's been raised to life, if he rules over this world in his power and his glory as king of creation, and he is so powerful that death couldn't even hold him in the grave, I've got to rethink things. And for a lot of these people, they're willing to, they're so fed up with life, not working the way that they want it to, they're dying. This is like, this is like water on their parched lips. This is a balm to their burdened and bruised and broken conscience and spirit. That death does not have the final say. That the life that seems so meaningless is not meaningless at all. It has great purpose. Even the most mundane life. So why focus on the resurrection and why try and explain it rationally? You notice Paul and crew don't come into the town guns blazing, yelling at the people to repent in a megaphone. They reason with the people. That means they presented arguments from Scripture. They always started with the Word of God. It wasn't just their philosophical ideas. They weren't trying to prove the resurrection from science. 
That's not necessary. They were proving it from the truth and the authority of Scripture because you know what Paul believed? That the truth of God, about God and His existence is within every human heart because we were created by Him. That we simply suppress the truth and exchange that truth for a lie. So here's the great hope for you, maybe in your discouragement about being an ambassador of this gospel. Whoever you talk to about your faith in Jesus, they know God exists. They know the truth. The truth is inside them. This, our task is to, un, is to resurrect that truth, in a sense, by the power of the Spirit. To present that truth to them and then trust God to do the awakening. We are meant to go and to plant the seeds and to present the case. And for some people, it will fall away. But for other people, that seed will set into that soil and it will, it will grow something beautiful. It will produce a harvest. You know, Paul would consider current worldviews, we'll talk about this more next week as he goes into Athens and he sees this monument for the unknown God and then he takes that in there, the, the, the current circumstance and the current worldview, and he engages that. He doesn't just have a shtick. He can go in and he can, every argument can be presented against him. He can familiarize himself with every worldview, and he can engage it because he knows that the truth will somehow supersede whatever worldview they have. Paul writes, I mean, Peter writes, sorry, in 1 Peter 3, we always need to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for the reason for the hope that is in us and to do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so those who revile you for it will be put to shame with gentleness and respect. This is why the guy standing outside the stadium with his megaphone saying you're going to hell if you don't repent is not an effective strategy. Now, God is gracious. He's so gracious. And I'm sure he has actually used that in his grace to bring someone to the saving knowledge of who Jesus is. So it's not useless, not in God's economy. But how effective is it when we are called to present the gospel with gentleness and respect in relationship with these people? He spends three weeks with them. He shows up every Sabbath day to reason from the scriptures about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians, we demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive. So the knowledge of God is in all of us. We have to engage that knowledge and, 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 and engage people with this presuppositional apologetic, which is a big word, but it is to presuppose that God is real, that the Bible is true. Instead of first trying to prove the existence of God before you bring the word in. You don't have to prove the existence of God to someone. Now, sure, bringing in some evidence, that's fine. Making some rational arguments is helpful. Engaging the mind is good. But, but you have to have a peace as one, as one who is called to be an ambassador for Christ that the truth is in there. To everyone you talk to. And as being image bearers of God with that truth in there, it should give you great compassion for all different kinds of people. That's our heartbeat here at Flat Rock. That's why part of the reason we're here. That's why we love the nations. That's why we don't just want to be a white Anglo church. We want to be a church where people are coming from all different backgrounds. 
And when it says Paul reasoned with them, it means that Paul shows these people why they should believe. He helps them understand how their beliefs are incomplete and thus false, and he appeals to authority that they should trust. Then he lays out what they should believe by proclaiming who Jesus is. He explains Christ's life and his work. He always ends by calling them to repentance and faith. Paul believed that in order to reject Christianity, you have to distort the truth and suppress the knowledge that's already in your heart and your mind. And Paul would always open the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 2, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So there's something cut off between our mind and our spirit, something that is dead and needs to be resuscitated and made alive. That's why prayer is so important to the work of the church because we are appealing to God for his help. An example, you don't try and convince a paranoid person who's convinced everyone on earth is trying to kill him based on how he perceives the truth, but based on how you perceive it, even though, the wor- that, even though that truth would conflict with his truth. On some level, the paranoid man knows he's wrong, and on some levels, he's able to hear and receive and embrace the truth. You reject his presupposition, and explain yours. You don't embrace his paranoia. You reject it, and you confront it with truth. So many people believe, you know, that the resurrection part of this story was just made up to spread Christianity. Many believe the disciples wanted to believe it so badly that they all suffered from cognitive dissonance of sorts which is really the state of belief held by a group of people not based in reality but upon shared hopes and fantasy that corresponds with a group's inner longings. This is why cults are formed. This is why false religions exist. This cognitive dissonance that all these people agree on. We have to ask ourselves, is that what we're suffering from? Are we a bunch of crazy people? Gather here each week, sing songs, we give money. We confess, we drink juice, we eat bread. Is this just cognitive dissonance? I don't think so. Paul's claims about Jesus' death and resurrection, if true, are so life-altering that some turn from their false religions to true faith in an instant. And we see this dichotomous response. This is the second point. Some people love it, and then some people are jealous of it. They're jealous of what? What do they have to be jealous of? If this isn't true, why be full of jealousy? Why want to kill these people? Why not just laugh at them? Have you ever thought about that? Is the case so strong? Is it striking such a chord within these people that the idea that they would have to completely change their life and their allegiances in a moment makes them want to essentially eliminate the competition? Get rid of these fools. Because we don't like what you're saying. We don't like that you're saying the way we've been living our lives, the things we've committed ourselves to have been wrong the entire time. It's a strong statement to make it to someone. And so the scandalous nature of this message makes them want to eliminate them because in their minds, how could these unclean, uneducated Gentiles who didn't deserve anything, who had done nothing religiously uh, memorable to achieve any kind of salvation, how could they be let in? How could God be gracious enough and have a big enough heart for even these people? And so it made them jealous for the grace that these Gentiles were receiving, that they themselves would not allow themselves to receive. You know, I'm really, I'm really bad 
at receive. I'm all about giving encouragement, giving things to people, but receiving it is really hard for me because I have so much pride. I want to think I don't need anything. I don't need anything from you. I can give you everything in my savior complex, but I don't need anything. And these people are so full of pride that they don't want to be told they need anything. And so they claim that the world is being turned upside down. This is not the way the world works. This is not how my life works. This is not what I've been living my life for. You can't tell me that I need to rethink everything. My allegiances, what I do with my money and my time and my resources. If you say that, I have to completely turn life on its head and rethink it. This is so upside down to the the ethic of this culture and this city. Well, times haven't changed much. Because we live in a culture where it's all about your independence. It's all about your gratification. It's all about your achievement. It's all about you making life secure by your advancements and your achievements. And this gospel is saying the same thing to us that it was saying to them. That's not going to save you. That's not going to be enough. That's not going to give you eternal peace. Reminds me of a quote C.S. Lewis had one of his famous quotes I was thinking about this week, where he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Christianity made sense of his world, of his brokenness, of his sin, of the disaster that he sees out in the world, of death, of injustice. That it's because that we are broken by sin, because this world is tainted, and that we are in desperate need of a Savior who is going to make it right who can live the life that we couldn't live to acquire the righteousness of God, to give it to us freely in our sin, to make that great exchange, our sin for His righteousness. And so the city so riled up that they kicked Paul and his friends out. And as Jesus taught them to do, they shake the dust off their feet. And something really interesting happens here, especially in light of the, the rational argument about the resurrection. So they're with a lot of these poor people in the city, right? And they're explaining the resurrection, and there's a lot of people who don't believe it because they think there's no way that's possible. And then there's people who believe it, and we think, oh, again, you know, these poor people, they didn't know any better, they're not educated, so of course they believe this fairy tale because they're so desperate to believe anything that's true and that would help their lives, right? Well, that argument is completely demolished because the next place they go is to Berea, to the noble people, to a people more noble. Do you know what that means? That means that they had a higher social and political and educational status. And what's their response? They see the reasonableness of the argument of the resurrection, and they believe it, and they study it, and it says they receive the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So even the most educated, the most well-to-do in society, they embraced this more than these people even in the city who weren't educated. That's interesting. <laughs> Preach it, sister. Thank you. Um, 
I think one thing that should challenge us as a church, and I'll start to close with this. Um, they always went out into the streets. They always went out amongst the people. They started in the synagogue, and they'd go out in the streets, and they'd proclaim it any way they could, whether it's with this innkeeper or in a business or tent making or whatever it might be. We need to be a people who are thinking about the streets, who are thinking about the community. And I think we were doing this at the beginning a lot. I think we've gotten a little complacent. And so it's really been heavy on my heart. I think I've gotten complacent. We, all of us. So I think we need to be thinking about the streets. We need to be thinking about burning more rubber out on the roads of, uh, of Woodbine, praying for the people here, knocking on doors, getting to know people in the park, spending time in the businesses and the coffee shops and the gyms, whatever it might be, whatever God's called you to or given you opportunity to, playing music like Frankie does, being out in the community, building relationships. And this has always been something we care about, but it's been something that we can't lose sight of. It needs to be central to how we make disciples at Flat Rock. And I'll close with this concerning the resurrection. Because it's so central to the disciples' claims about Christianity, because so many people struggle with the idea of a resurrected Jesus even today, I find it very interesting that Mark ends his gospel with these surprising words. Okay, so Mark's written the gospel. He's, he's in with the resurrection, and it's this, obviously you would think this very celebratory, awesome conclusion. This is the last verse of Mark. And they went out, and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, if you want to spread Christianity, that's probably not the verse you want to end with. And they were shut up. They were dumbfounded and silent over what they had witnessed, and they didn't tell anyone anything. What that's telling us is that Mark is presenting something that is true. You know, there's all these different takes on, on how the disciples exactly experienced um, the, the resurrection and what happened and how they experienced Jesus in his resurrected form. And there's, they, they almost, their accounts almost seem contradictory. But in, in a courtroom... Usually you can tell if a story is not true if everyone presents the exact same details about a story. That usually men means that they gathered together and they made it up and they had a few talking points to make sure that people believed them. But it's actually, lawyers would tell you, it's more reasonable to believe a story when just some details are, are, are changed a little bit. When, this, when the, the testimony about what happened is not exactly the same amongst those who witnessed it. It's showing the truth of how they experienced it in their own experience. And so with this gospel, with Mark here at the end, to say that they were afraid, to give us that detail about how they experienced it, is pretty startling. Why, if the disciples decided to make this up as a way to get people to believe them and follow their made-up religion, would Mark admit that they left Jesus' tomb in a dumbfounded silence without words to explain what they saw or didn't see? To me, that makes a really bad conclusion to a story that's supposed to be so life-changing. The way he ends his gospel, is it, it testifies to the utter unique and novel concept that no one had a category for. And one pastor writes this, and I'll, I'll end with this. He says, there were many messianic movements prior to Jesus. So many people that came along and said, I'm the Messiah. People claiming to be Israel's Messiah. And they all ended the same. The figure would die. The movement would die with him. Not one time before Jesus... Did one of those figures have the idea of pretending that he rose from the dead? Much less try to pull off such an impossible hoax. It was a profoundly ludicrous idea. First century people knew very well that dead people stayed dead. And they never would have thought up the concept of a resurrection. And yet out of nowhere the disciples started claiming Jesus of Nazareth risen from the dead as ridiculously unlikely as that may have seemed. 
And the nature of the resurrection they described was likewise inconceivable. Perhaps the enchanted world of the first century would have believed the story that Jesus was appearing as a spirit. But that wasn't the claim. He wasn't just a ghost. Isn't it it funny that that would have been more reasonable? He's still around as a ghost. But what what really made it unbelievable was that he was actually a resurrected bodily. He was an actual physical body that they could see, touch, and share a meal with. And yet there was something different about his physical body because he would appear out of nowhere. Even in the locked rooms, as the laws of time and space didn't apply, the risen Jesus was a completely novel concept, both physical and spiritual. A glorified body that the disciples never could have conceived of, let alone try and invent. And what's more, the risen Jesus started appearing to other witnesses, entire groups of people, and even Jesus' greatest enemy. And then by the time you get to Acts, in the letter of the apostles, the resurrection has moved from something entirely unexpected, what we see in Mark, to center stage of the story, the very dominant tenet of the faith, something that was increasingly novel because it was uncompromisingly necessary within the first years of the early church, and from there, the rest of history. So, as we go to this table this morning, I want us to remember the hope we have in the face of death. I want you to consider living life backwards. I want you to consider what it means, if Jesus is resurrected, what that means for your commitments in life. The good news is that even if you didn't believe this before and you believe it now, you can believe this and trust this for the first time even this morning. If If in Christ you no longer have to fear death, but you can live with hope, what does that mean for you and the world around you, your neighbors, and your calling to be ambassadors for Christ? Let's pray.